0: Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest, Colson Whitehead, burst on the scene in 1999 with his debut novel The Intuitionist, a book about warring factions of elevator inspectors that Esquire named Best Debut Novel of the Year. His second novel, John Henry Days, was shortlisted for the Pulitzer Prize and was a Newsweek and USA Today Book of the Year. In 2002, Whitehead received the MacArthur Fellowship Award, more commonly known as the Genius Grant, And his subsequent books include The Colossus of New York, Apex, Hides the Hurt, and Sag Harbor. Colson Whitehead is with us today on Between the Covers to talk about his new book, Zone One, a book of zombie apocalypse in Manhattan. Welcome to Between the Covers, Colson Whitehead.
1: Hey, howdy. Thanks for having me.
0: So our protagonist in Zone One, Mark Spitz, he's a sweeper. Can you you tell us what a sweeper is and what exactly he's up against at the beginning of the novel?
1: Sure. Um... You know, it takes, the, the book takes off from uh, various entries in the zombie apocalypse genre, which for me is a film genre. Um, I grew up on the first Romero trilogy and various post-apocalyptic films. And so those are the main inspiration for the book. Sweepers are people who are trying to put society back together after the apocalypse is in abeyance. And so... Most of the zombies are dead, Uh, there are settlement camps up and down the east coast and the survivors have this idea that they can resettle Manhattan, it's an island, so you block off the bridges and the tunnels and once you get the plague infected wretches out of the residential towers and corporate buildings, people can live there again. So the army's gone through and swept out uh, 99% of the monsters and now civilian teams uh, volunteers are going door-to-door getting their remainders
0: and those are the sweepers uh,
1: yeah the sweepers are the um, the civilian volunteers the there's not there's a little bit of, of lingo uh, sweepers s- skells, that's the name for the zombies in the book for the skeletal appearance and then there are the stragglers um, and stragglers are a, a um, a variant of the zombies in the book. Um, they're kind of like ghosts. Uh, instead of feasting on human flesh, they feast upon their own pasts, I guess you could say. So uh, once they get infected, they head as if by a homing signal to places that they're emotionally attached to, neurotically fixated upon. I felt a soft
0: spot for stragglers. I know that might sound strange, but I know this is your contribution to the zombie lore is the idea of the straggler who's sort of caught in doing a a last nostalgic gesture that they're trapped in in the end. And I imagine myself being a straggler. Maybe that's why, because I I saw these sad souls like going back to a, a a poignant place in their life or in their job and sort of becoming frozen there. And uh it was, it was kind of touching, actually.
1: Well, no, I mean, yeah. I mean, I'm trying to talk about nostalgia and, all right, you know, the idea of the self. In, 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 a, in a, the same way that, that the stragglers are uh, completely stuck on who they used to be, even though the situation on the ground has changed, their survivors are also um, stuck in the past trying to bring the, uh, their former lives into this new world of the disaster. And, of course, it doesn't go as planned. You know, in, in comparing the uninfected survivors with the infected stragglers and scales, you know, I'm trying to break down the divisions between the two, you know, figure out what's dead about the living and what's still living in the dead.
0: Colson, could you read a section of the book for us? Uh, maybe you could set it up and let us know uh, what's going on first.
1: So uh, Mark Spitz, Damaged Survivor, in from the Wastelands. Uh, Here he is thinking about his anxiety dreams that he's had since he's um, uh, come in from the cold and found civilization again. The dreams changed once he made it to his first big settlement. He was no longer late for the final exam of a class he didn't know he'd enrolled in or about to deliver the big presentation when he suddenly realized he'd left the only copy in a taxi. His dreams unfurled in the theater of the mundane. There was no pulse-quickening escalation of events, no stakes to mention. He took the train to work. He waited for his slices extraction from the pizza joint's hectic oven. He jawed with his girlfriend. And all the supporting characters were dead. The dead said, let's stay in and get a movie. You want fries with that? Do you know what time it is? while flies skittered on their faces, searching for a soft flap to bury eggs in, and their arms terminated at the elbow to showcase a white peach of bone fringed with dangling muscle and dripping tendons. He said, sure, let's stay in and snuggle, honey. I'll take the side salad, thank you. It's ten of five. Gets dark early this time of year. He downward dogged in a drop in yoga class as the skull next to him broke in half while trying the pose. No one remarked upon this sight, not him, not the dead teacher, not the enthusiastic and limber dead around him, and not the bisected skull on the floral patterned hemp mat who flopped grotesquely through the rest of the hour like a real trooper. He got into his street clothes in the locker room as the yuppie Skell beside him dragged an expensive watch over his wrist, grating the fresh scabs there. On impulse, he purchased a deluxe deluxe combo juice at the cafe on the way out and decided not to say anything when the Nepompli Skell dropped a banana slice into the blender. He hated banana he drank it anyway blowing into the striped straw to dislodge a plug of pulp and stepped out into the sidewalk into the rush hour stream of the dead on their way home the paralegals resigned temps bike messengers and slump-shouldered massage therapists the panoply of citizens in the throes of their slow decay the only unselling thing about the dream was that he'd never taken a yoga class in his life
0: in case you just tuned in, we're talking with Colson Whitehead today about Zone 1. On a really superficial level, Colson, it, it seems like this is a big departure from your your previous books. Um, obviously, like, say, with Sag Harbor, we have an African-American teenager. It's about their summer on the wealthy beaches in, in, in Long Island. But on another level, it feels like this book is squarely a, still a literary book, even though it's g ge- Dealing with a genre topic, I mean, we hear the lyricism and in, in what you just read. How do you how do you um, balance those two things, um, f- fulfilling the tropes of the genre, and also um, doing these meditations or contemplations on on society?
1: Well, I mean, I you know, my first book, The Intuitionist, uh, was a takeoff on the detective novel, and and you know, partially I'm paying tribute to what I love about the detective genre. Then I'm trying to invent my own sort of way of of dealing with the conventions, rejecting some, embracing others. And, um, you know, I'm doing the same thing in Zone One, uh, in Sag Harbor, you know, sort of an anti-coming-of-age novel. So I was trying to figure out what made this sort of type of story tick and then deconstruct it. So I'm always doing, uh, you know, my shtick, no matter what kind of rhetorical prop I'm using, whether it's Teenagers in Sag Harbor, or uh, flesh-eating monsters in in Zone One—they uh, really are just rhetorical flourishes that allow me to talk about society, people. Um, this, you know, book to me is not so much about blowing up monsters' heads, but how to survive in a changed world, de- negotiating the before and after, um, whether you've uh, encountered a big disaster in your life, or a communal one, or a private one? How do you uh, make the change, navigate uh, this new landscape, and remain intact?
0: I know a lot of your books uh, either deal directly or obliquely uh, with issues of race. And while this one doesn't, I was wondering if part of your attraction to zombies versus, say, vampires or werewolves had to do with the strange racial history of, of zombies. I, in doing research for this book, I discovered all sorts of things about zombies that I, I didn't know, that the original ones were black and from Haiti, and that they were used by the American sugar company as sort of docile, um, hard laborers, and that only it was actually novel for a zombie to be white. And that changed later on. But I was curious if you were intrigued by that um, well, that history and if that somehow played into the choice.
1: I mean, my history of zombies starts with um, the novel I Am Legend. Uh, so, uh, so, you know, the Haitian zombie, uh, for me, doesn't connect um, so much as uh, post-World War II uh, fiction and, and film. Uh, I locate, you know, the terror of the zombie apocalypse in the idea that Suddenly, uh, your friends, your family, your neighbors, the guy at the cafe—all these people can be revealed as the monsters you've already, you've always sort of suspected uh, them to be. And so, my idea encompasses invasion of the body snatchers. You know, the '50s version and the '78 version, the early Romero entries, where the rules of our civilized society are. Uh, turned on their heads and, um, everyone you sort of have trusted and loved in your whole life is now against you. And that's, you know, sort of a sad commentary on my psychology, but that's how I've always in- interpreted it. Uh, but definitely seeing Night-, Night of Living Dead, um, you know, when I was in sixth grade and seeing a really strong, a strong black protagonist, uh, resonated with me. You know, I'd seen a lot of black exploitation films, you know, that was the time, but seeing, um... Just a normal Joe who uh, uh, is on the run from a white mob who wants to destroy him seems you know seems to be a part of the American Chronicle. And um, you know, George Merrill' say interviews. he just uh, cast Dwayne Jones, the African-American actor, just because he was the best person who auditioned. and didn't realize till later, uh, what sort of resonance it would have in uh, post-civil rights America. But it definitely stuck with me and made me um, attached to the, the genre.
0: Well, so, well, similar to the Romero films, it feels like um, you put the reader in an unusual place since you are doing commentary about society. Like I didn't exactly want the zombies to win, but I also couldn't entirely cheer for the humans because it felt like they were so readily eager to recreate this society of uh, corporate consumerism and and tell us a little bit about this this um, branded uh, zombie like human effort to reconstruct New York.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, even before I wrote a word, I was trying to figure out what are the features of this particular um, apocalypse, and I think early on I decided that living in the end times, in the ruined world, it's pretty much like living before. It's just that 95% of the population is dead and people are more bummed out. And I think when you, when the characters in the book try to reestablish society, they're still stuck in their old, old, their old grooves. And I think the worst parts of contemporary um, society will come back quickly. So, that, so for me, that's marketing, uh, our need for fresh organic greens, it's uh, corporate branding, um, a need for catchy slogans. You know, they uh, the government plucks a, uh, a songwriter out of the wasteland, and he comes up with an anthem for reconstruction called "Stop Can You Hear?" or "Stop Can You Hear the Eagle Roar?" And so people are humming this as they go about uh, destroying zombies. So, um, in a the same way that the stragglers and the skulls are not too far removed from survivors in a certain kind of way the pre disaster self is very much um overlapping merging with the post disaster self
0: yeah it feels like you're you're going oh my god is it would they really this quickly go back to them to this this way that maybe for a brief moment under the pressure of the zombies they were going to give up and unite and find a new society and it is kind of um it feels both very realistic and and dispiriting that they would uh uh, so quickly be thinking about you know, types of furniture to put in the new condominium and the different sponsored products that the people in the army are, are using by the different corporations that are vying to be the biggest part in the, in the reconstruction.
1: No, I mean, it's all they know. And so, of course, it's those creature comforts and um, consumerist ideals they've been chasing their whole life that uh, will, will guide them pretty swiftly after things start to get back to normal. I almost felt
0: like there was more joy and humor in your descriptions of the grotesqueness of the zombies and uh, more of a sort of a nauseating dread in the way the descriptions were done of the brands and the products. And the it just felt like this heap of, of human trash that was accumulating and that people were wondering about shopping again as they were still trying to eliminate the the city of these uh so-called zombies.
1: Well, sure. I mean, I think if you've... You know, I mean, the zombie world is not too far away. Um, If you ever try to catch a train at rush hour in Grand Central or any sort of big transportation hub or try to go shopping at a Whole Foods-type place at, you know, 6 p.m. on a weekend, uh, you're in a zombie world for a few minutes um, in, in the blind mob after their sort of grubby ends. So... Um, you know, that's part of my take on, on on where we'll be once it all goes down.
0: In case you just tuned in, we're talking with Colson Whitehead today about Zone One. Well, let's talk about the city of New York. Uh, I know you you said a lot of your fiction there, um, but was there a specific reason w- other than that why you chose to destroy New York versus somewhere else?
1: Well, this is actually my, my, my first novel that takes place in the city. Uh, the Intuitionist takes place in a, a kind of Detective novel Gotham. That's like an essential city, not necessarily New York. Uh, So I was overdue. You know, they said a a novel in in the city, and I I think from growing up in the you know Manhattan in the seventies and eighties, when um, the city was broke, when uh, it was being ravaged by the crack crack epidemic. Um, that ruined city is, is, is part of my original conception of, of where I live. And I think, you know, if you live any place for any real amount of time, you're always superimposing that city you've known for years over what's there now. And so, um, you know, outside the studio, uh, 20 years ago, perhaps it was a rundown uh, sort of stretch of Portland. And now there are hipster cafes, you know, hip uh, hotel, the Jupiter Hotel, around the corner. Um, but if you're a longtime resident, you can see uh, that ruined uh, Portland that used that used to be um, your landscape, and sort of still superimpose it. So it's, it's that idea of um, of of the kind of city we see in front of us and walk around with that animates, you know, some of Mark Spitz's relationship with um, uh, his. He's uh with with Zone One. He's a suburban kid. Always wanted to move to move to New York to become that sophisticated, you know, city fellow uh, of legend. And so even as he walks through this devastated city, uh, he can still insert his childhood dreams of being a um, uh, metropolitan dandy. And of course, you know, you, you can't go back there. It feels like Zone One's a
0: companion piece to the Colossus of New York in that sense. You have, I don't remember the name of the essay, but there was an essay where you talk about how um, you are—you know you're a New Yorker when you can remember something that no longer exists or that's been destroyed, that has been replaced.
1: Yeah, uh, lo- Lost and Found. And that sort of came, you know, I wrote that right after 9-11. I was trying to grapple with um, my city, which had, you know, become uh, brutally ruined for me. Uh, and... And I was trying to figure out, partially through writing that, how I could live in this place uh, that I love so much uh, when it had been changed um, uh, forever. So, um, you know, I I wasn't directly writing about 9-11 in Zone 1. It's, I think it's in there in a larger notion of disaster. Uh, You know, our catastrophes are communal sometimes. Felt by our whole communities, or private, um, a death in a family, or you know, losing your job. And so for me, so you know, for the heart of, the, of Zone One is really about Mark Spitz finding that new self in the aftermath of a catastrophe. Um, and but he is using some of the tropes that are in Colossus to describe how he feels about the city.
0: And there's a sense also of. Mark Spitz as a sweeper at least for me it was very evocative of Giuliani and the way the sweeping of undesirables out of the off the <laughs> island I mean I don't know if that was intentional but <laughs> when you talk about layers of memory and, and how different New Yorkers have different New Yorks in their mind and I'm thinking about these people going in and just sort of getting rid of everybody that they that um, they didn't want to be there anymore in zone one I couldn't help but think of him
1: right I mean it wasn't intentional yeah it wasn't, wasn't intentional but um, you know it's probably probably in there now. that you mention it, yeah.
0: Yeah, and then and, and I know you say this isn't truly a a nine eleven book, but uh, but it definitely has a lot that's evocative of it. I think of Ground Zero and Zone One having sort of a a resonance and in, in sound and and name and and uh, the idea of post apocalyptic stress disorder, which everyone in in Zone One is suffering from, surely... Uh, that's similar to what people must have been experiencing after
1: 9-11. Yeah, I mean, you know, the survivors are diagnosed with this condition, um, post-apocalyptic stress disorder. And the symptoms are insomnia, eating too much, sleeping too much, uh, eating too little, irritability, headaches, nightmares. Uh, and that's basically the symptoms of anybody on a, on a Monday morning. So, you know, the traumatized uh, survivor self uh, again is, isn't too far from just the uh, harried ex- existential um, modern person. So do you think you're going
0: to uh, continue in the horror sci-fi genre with your next book?
1: Uh, I'm not sure you know this, um, since I am sort of perversely jumping from you know style to style, I probably won't do another horror one next. You know, I just finished this book in January, and so we were editing all spring. And um, I could use a rest, so I'm just going to chill. You know, I'm teaching two days a week, hang out with my kid, and uh, i going to watch a lot of TV for next year or so.
0: That sounds like a great year. You're going to be a zombie <laughs> next year. <laughs>
1: yes. <laughs> uh, back to my old uh, my old shtick, yeah.
0: We were talking today with Colson Whitehead, the author of Zone One. I'm David Naiman, your host, and you've been listening to Between the Covers.